I don't care if God ever shows me that this is for my good. I get to believe it. It's part of me. It's down in my toes. It's what the Bible says. Don't take that away from me. If, if God takes all, it takes everything, leave me the scriptures and don't let me ever doubt them. He could sit at the pulpit and make it feel like he was just in his living room with a bunch of friends, just telling stories, but in a way that he would be taking these complex biblical truths and communicating them in such a way that a first grader could understand. It was just so natural, it was just a conversation. Like every lesson, because it was so natural, felt like every lesson was like a light bulb moment. Anytime I had a question about a spiritual truth, I could come to him anytime throughout the week and he always made me feel like I was giving him a gift just by asking. Welcome to the Timeless Gospel Podcast. I'm your host, Faith Ann, and Larry Horton was my dad. The deepest connection I had with my dad was through his teaching of the gospel. My dad communicated grace more deeply and simply than most. These sermons came to be preserved through my dear Aunt Shirley, who, in the early 80s, requested that my dad's sermons be recorded on cassette tapes and mailed to her so that she could be edified from five states away. When Larry died and went home to be with the Lord in 2019, my Aunt Shirley came to the funeral and brought with her the very sermons this podcast was created to showcase. The remaining sermons were preached in the early 2000s at the church he pastored until he died. His children's prayer is that you will come to Christ through these sermons, or if you already are a Christian, be edified and comforted as so many were during his life. In episode 8 of The Timeless Gospel, Larry continues his study in Romans, beginning in chapter 2, which he labels the stockyards of the book. After the episode, I talk about the blessing the Timeless Gospel Project has been for me, reminding me to apply the truths of Romans to my relationships. Do you have a question or comment about the podcast? You can email me at thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. Analogy of preaching through the Bible as getting on the Bible bus and traveling across the scriptures, starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation, starting on the West Coast and ending on the East Coast. Uh, we have a lot of, of beauty in here in Romans that we're going to, uh, using the same analogy as we're going across Romans, uh, we find a lot of refreshing brooks with nice smelling flowers, and we'll stop and just have us a picnic, and we'll have a good time, and we'll spend a lot of time there. But there are other times when when, when we're going across the desert or when we're going across and it doesn't smell good, the road is bumpy, we don't want to spend a lot of time there. So in, in this passage of Scripture, uh, using J. Vernon McGee's analogy, I figured that we're on about 10th and South Avenue right now in Oklahoma City. We're right in the middle of the stockyards. So we're going to, to get through this as quickly as possible and go on to, to where we can relax and refresh ourselves uh, when we get out of these 63 verses. So I am uh, speeding through uh, these chapters, chapters 1, chapters 2, and half of chapter 3. With that in mind, let's begin reading verse 1. We're going to look at, uh, at five verses this morning, but I'd like to read the, the whole passage and the, the passages from one verse 1 of chapter 2 down to verse 16. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, 
When you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good, and let me uh, par or interject here, remember folks, because this gets you in a lot of trouble if you don't remember this, we are in a passage that is teaching the judgment of God. There is no salvation here. And please do not read into these next verses salvation. We're talking about how God judges men, not how God saves men. Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. You will not be saved by your deeds, but you'll certainly be judged by your deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them eternal life. But to those who are selfish, ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God will give them wrath and indignation. So, if you were to obey the whole law of God, God would give you eternal life. It means that you do not. You better find another way. We'll get to that next week. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatingly accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men's lives. Okay, now remember we're in a courtroom. God, uh, Paul is the, is the prosecuting attorney. And he brings us before God in this, in this courtroom. God is our judge. And the first thing that Paul says is exhibit A is creation. God created the world. And men will not acknowledge God after looking at his creation. That's exhibit A. We've, we've spent two weeks on that. Now exhibit B is, okay, forget that. Forget the fact that, that God created the world and you didn't acknowledge God. But look at our own conscience. You who judge another, when you judge someone, you prove that you prove out of your own mouth that you know right from wrong. Have you ever done wrong? Okay, you're condemned. And that is the two exhibits in, in uh, the last part of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 1. Now, I went ahead and, and wrote this down here because I've talked through this this way. And if I was going to, to take the whole passage this morning, this is the way we'd look at it. The seven uh, additional evidences of how God will judge man. But I want to spend a lot of time on verses 1, 2, and 3. So therefore, we're going to look at this next week. But if you'll just look, uh, verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. God's going to judge according to truth. doesn't matter what you think. It's what is truth. God will judge according to truth. And then in verse 5, we find that we, are, we have stubborn and unrepentant hearts. God's going to judge you according to your own heart. 
uh, verse 6, going to judge you according to your deeds. What bad deeds have you performed? If you performed any, you're in big trouble. Okay? Uh, number four, without partiality. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher, pope, or parson. God's going to judge you according to your deeds, according to your heart, according to truth. And he doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're black or white, short or tall, uh, old or young. Okay. Uh, verse 13, he's going to judge you according to your obedience to his law. Yes, you will be judged according to your obedience of his law. You certainly will not be justified. You certainly will not be blessed by the obedience of God's law. The God, God's law is there to judge you through your own disobedience. And then we'll be judged according to the gospel. What have we done with the gospel? And then we're going to be judged after all is said and done. We're going to be judged according to the secrets of our own hearts. So that in, in, is a, a nice little outline to go by if you were going to try to uh, uh, teach this passage all at one time. With that being said, let's go back to, to verse 1, 2, and 3. I'd like to spend some time here. We're going to look at it doctrinally, and then we're going to look at it practically. How does this, how does this verse uh, affect my everyday life? But first we want to look at it doctrinally. What is being said here? Verse 1, therefore, you who are with, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There is no escape. Last two weeks we've been looking at the fella, the immoral man, the fella that says there is no God, the fella that, that changes uh, uh, the glory of an incorruptible God into the, uh, worships a corruptible man, changes, he suppresses the truth of God, he recognizes God in creation, he suppresses it. Uh, we talked about homosexuals, and then we talked about the 21 fruits of this kind of attitude, the, the liars, the, the slanderers, uh, the gossipers, the murderers. Uh, but there's another class of people. That's, that's the fellow that's out here, doesn't have any use for God, doesn't want, want to go to church, doesn't have any use for uh, the laws of this land, just the, the real sinner, okay? But there's another class of people. Actually, there are three more classes of people. But two weeks from now, we're going to look at the religious man, the fellow that puts his trust in his religion. Puts his trust in the fact that he goes to church, that he knows a little bit about the Bible, that he's made some kind of profession of faith. That religious person, can he escape the judgment of God? We'll find out in two weeks. Next week, we'll find the fellow that's never heard of Christ. He's never heard of the Bible. He doesn't know the first thing about the Lord, about, about the Bible. Can God judge him? Can, can God send a man to hell that's never given him the chance to repent and be saved? We'll see that next week. But this week, we're looking at the moral man. We're looking at the next door neighbor. We're looking at, at the city of Moore. We're looking at the, uh, at the good guys, the people who are good neighbors, the people who, who, who are not uh, trying to hurt anybody, people who are doing the best they can. They work hard. They provide for their families. What about that fella? Can God judge him? And how? It's not, Linda pointed this out this morning, it's not enough to tell somebody, you're going to hell. The wrath of God is on you because they want to know, well, how come? And we never hear, how come? Well, this morning we're going to talk about how come God can send a good moral person to hell. Now, 
going on. I, I, I hate that I have to stop here and do this, but I just must. Because of the error that's been taught down through the ages concerning verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, I must now stop and tell you what it doesn't say. And, and I hate to do that. It just takes up our time. But I must do that because the, the church is teaching uh, erroneous truths here, erroneous uh, lies here. On the surface, as you look at it, it and, and, and if you're you want to be under God's law. You want you, you, you've been listening to, to the false teachers who try to put us under God's law for obedience. Then it jumps right out at you that verse one. Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you passes judgment. For that you judge another, you condemn yourself. So the the application is naturally well. Then let's don't judge. We're thinking that the Bible here is saying that we shouldn't judge. That's not what it's saying at all. There is a, a, a great deal of input, of evidences, of how we are to judge. There's, there's, a, there's a side over here and a side over here. And we're not to look down on anybody from our own goodness. But yet we do judge. Uh, uh, we're, we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. How can we do that without judging? Don't think for a moment that we're not supposed to judge because we are. Let me explain. Analogy. I'm a Christian, and I'm and record, according to uh, Romans chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one, I'm not supposed to judge. So here comes this 15 year old kid riding up my front line on a motorcycle. Got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and six pack of beer over his shoulder. Comes knocking on my door and he's got tattoos down both arms. And he wants to take my daughter out on a date. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. The well-known phrase, over my dead body. Well, why should I, how can I say that? It's because I'm judging. Well, you shouldn't judge that young man. God separates the sin from the sinner. No, he doesn't. There's not a word in here about that. Not one word of Scripture saying that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. You cannot separate the sin from the sinner. It's all one thing. And I'm going to judge that young man. Uh, that's, that's reasonable, isn't it? We understand that, don't we? This, this verse is not saying that you're not supposed to judge. Now, there's all kinds of scripture that we need to deal with on this, this word judgment to, to deal with it correctly. There, we are never to look down on somebody from a, from a higher level. Christians are not better people than anyone else. Christians are better off. And we need to remember that. But at the same time, our whole life is, is every day we're full of judgment. You have to judge whether this man's lying to you or whether he's telling you the truth. You have to judge. You judge, you judge everything. Your, your life is made up of judgment and choices. To say we're not to judge is to create zombies. You know, why did I wear a jacket this morning? Uh, uh, it, why, would we, why would we put on heavy clothes if we didn't judge that it was cold outside? To say a man shouldn't judge has just been ridiculous. So this passage is not talking about you should not judge because we're going to judge. God placed in the Old Testament judges to rule Israel. Uh, it's ridiculous to say that we're not to judge. After saying that now, what does it say? And to show you, to, to get this truth to your, through real quick, I'm going to give you an, an analogy that, uh, that is almost blasphemous. 
Uh, but if you'll give me a little liberty, I feel that God has this morning, and I'm going to give you this analogy and show you what, what, what's been said here. I've got a next-door neighbor. And I go over and I knock on my next-door neighbor's house, front door, and I say, hey, neighbor, I want you to meet me at the corner of Main and Broadway tomorrow at noon, and I'm going to give you $1,000. And every person that you bring with you, I'm going to give them $500. And every person that you bring with you, I'm going to give you $500 for bringing them. Okay. So we show up next, I show up the next day down at Main and, Main and Broadway. And there's a, a multitude of people this guy's brought. And the first thing he does, he comes with his hand out. And he says, uh, I'd like to have my money. I said, well, what are you talking about? Well, you told me that you would give me this money. Well, I don't have any money. Well, then why did you have me here? Well, I'm a preacher, and I want to preach to you. You brought all these people. I'm going to preach the gospel to them. Maybe God will save some of them. And he gets furious. He gets angry. You lied to me. I'm sorry. i got to go all the way back to the beginning of my story. Hypothetically, and I don't think you can find this guy in America. I don't think there's one of these people that exists. Not one. A next door neighbor, a man who owns or rents a house. I don't believe in a, in a, in, a, in America. You can find this guy, but let's just say, for my analogy, that he's never heard the word Jesus Christ. That he does know nothing. He has never opened the Bible. He doesn't even know the Bible exists. And he's never been to church. And he, but he's a good he's a good neighbor. Okay, now get him back. So he's furious, and in his anger, he backs off the curb at Main and Broadway. And a truck, a semi-truck comes along and runs over him and kills him. And he's he dead. And immediately, he goes before the throne of God for judgment. Now I swear it's almost blasphemy. Believe me, any of us who stand before God in judgment, we will not answer back to him. We will not say a word. But for my analogy, let me continue. God says, why should I let you in my perfect heaven? He says, well, I'm a, I'm a real good fellow. Uh, I'm a city councilman and more. Uh, I, I have a family. I love my family. I work hard for them. I provided for them. I didn't cause any trouble. I didn't break any laws. So that's why I should let you in. And God says, and again, this is almost blasphemous, I condemn you to hell because you're in Adam. When Adam sinned, you sinned. Therefore, I am going to condemn you to hell. The man says, well, that doesn't sound very fair to me. I didn't sin. Adam did 6,000 years ago. Why are you blaming me for something he did? And God says, well, got a point there. All right, forget that. I'm going to tell you why I'm going to send you to hell. I'm going to send you to hell because I created the world. And you saw the creation. And you did not recognize me as God. And you did not worship me as God. And the man says, oh, yes, I did. I saw the creation. I'm not an atheist. I've always believed in you. I've always said there's a higher being. And, and, and to know there's a higher being, all you got to do is look at creation. I believe in you, God. I believe you created the world, and I believe that way back down on earth. Well, okay, you got a point there. I'm going to judge you and send you to hell because you never accepted my son and his work on the cross. I went through a great deal of trouble to provide you with righteousness. 
a great deal of trouble and a great deal of anguish, and you rejected my son and the work that he did on the cross. And the guy says, what? I never heard of your son. I never heard of the cross. Shoot, if somebody had told me about the cross, I'd have believed in your son. I'm not an atheist. I believe in you. I've, I've seen creation. I'm a city councilman and more. People respect me. Of course I want to be in heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Well, I'm, I, can't, I can't condemn you because of your ignorance, I suppose. Well, it seemed to me that just before that semi-truck run over you, you were upset at that bald-headed preacher down there, down there in Moore, Oklahoma. Why was that? Well, he lied to me. Well, how did he lie to you? Well, he told me that if I brought people, he's going to give me money, and I brought the people, he didn't give me any money. And he lied to me. Well, is lying wrong? Well, of course lying's wrong. Well, how do you know that lying's wrong? Well, I don't know. I just know that lying's wrong, and he lied to me, and you ought to send him to hell. Tell me, Jack, have you ever lied? Uh-oh. Yes, I have. By the words out of your own mouth, I condemn you to hell. That's how smart God is. And that's how just God is, and that's how righteous God is. He doesn't need all the other things that we're going to talk about through the book of Romans. All he needs is your own conscience. You have judged someone else for wrongdoing. And the only reason you know that's wrong is because you've done it yourself. If you hadn't done it yourself, you wouldn't know that it's wrong. You can only judge what you know. I have no opinion on moon rocks. I have absolutely no opinion whatsoever on moon rocks. I don't know if our government did a good thing by bringing those back or if they did a bad thing about bringing those back because I know nothing whatsoever about moon rocks. I have no opinion. But I dislike people lying to me. God says, by the words out of your own mouth, you stand before me without excuse and I'm going to send you to hell because you know that lying is wrong. You didn't learn it in my word. You didn't learn it from the preacher, but you were born with that knowledge. I put it in you. It's your conscience. I put it inside of you. And but the fact that you've judged that preacher for lying to you proves to me that you know that lying is wrong. Have you ever lied? Yes. Then you're condemned. That's what these first three verses are saying. It's not saying you shouldn't judge. It's showing that, you, that, that this is one way in which this is exhibit B. This is your conscience. If you ignore creation or accept it, that's okay. God can still get you by your own conscience. Therefore, you're without excuse. You are without excuse if you've ever judged another human being for anything. You stand before God without excuse. Without excuse. Take this thing to its limit. You've got this sweet, wonderful, 95-year-old, precious little grandmother who's never done a thing in her whole life wrong. And she judged that Adolf Hitler was wrong in what he did. She says, that man was wrong in trying to run the world. Well, Grandma, have you ever tried to, to run anybody's life? Just once, have you ever made them submit to you? Grandma, you stand before me without excuse. I'm going to send you to hell. Because you know by your own mouth that Adolf Hitler was wrong, and you've done the very same thing. That's what God is saying here. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. <clears throat> now, I'm going to take this out and, and look at it practically. 
might help you. It certainly has helped me. You, that's what it's saying, folks. That, that's, what God is, that's what Paul is proving here, that if you've ever judged anybody for anything, I don't care what it is, that means you believe that to be wrong or you wouldn't have judged them. And the fact that you believe that to be wrong, you've done that very thing. You stand before God without excuse. That's the doctrine of it. The way it works out practically in our lives is we, we only judge what we know. I have been accused on several occasions of talking too much. But do you know my wife has never accused me of talking too much in our whole marriage? She has never accused me of that. You know why she never has? She doesn't know anything about it. She doesn't know anything about talking too much. But you know what she has accused me of in our marriage? Of being too quiet. Won't you talk to me? How come you don't talk to me? You only judge what you know. Now, I get in a, in, in a group of people, and here's this motor mouth over here. She's just going, or he's just going, going, going. Can't shut him up. And I get upset, and I get mad. And I, why doesn't a man shut up? Why do I want him to be quiet? So I can talk. Exactly, so I can talk. That's the way it works. I don't judge a person over here for being too quiet. I judge those who talk too much, because I know a little bit about that. In my work, I can condone just about anything. I can condone ignorance. I can, if they don't show up for work, that's okay. Uh, if they stay drunk, stay out all night, that's okay. I can, that's okay. But there's one thing I just cannot abide by. I just can't have it, and I get rid of everybody that even starts to look like this. And that's somebody who will not work. I just, I just can't handle laziness. And I've never been able to handle laziness on the job. Four or five of us go out and work together, and if one guy isn't keeping his load up, I'm on his case. Won't you get to work, get to work, get to work? Why? Because if he's not working, it's going to force me to work more. And I'm basically lazy. See how it works? The first rule, the first rule in marriage counseling, after you get them all set, settled down, you finally get them speaking to one another, you bring them in and you ask the husband to be excused. And you talk to the wife and you say, if you could change anything, anything at all about your husband, the number one thing that if you were God and you could change anything you wanted to change about your husband, what would that be? What's the number one thing? And she tells you. And you write it down. Because from that point on in this, in this counseling session, you're going to deal with her concerning that. Then you bring the husband in. What's the number one thing that you, if you were God, that you'd like to change your wife? What is the number one thing in your wife you'd like to change? Whatever he says, you write it down, and that's what you deal with him on. We have a friend, and that's as far as I'll go with it, <laughs> that feels her husband is the tightest man that ever lived. And she spent her life trying to get money out of this guy. And he's just so frugal. He's just so tight. And if she could change anything about this man, she'd want him to give up a little more money. But in talking to this lady, she's the tightest lady I've ever seen. I don't know of anyone that's more concerned about misering up money than she is. And it'll work, friends, every single time. Every single time. Well, what would you change about that person over there? Well, they just talk too much. 
They just talk too much. Well, I'll write that down and I'll sit back and get ready because I know that that person across from me is going to carry on this conversation from now on. Well, that person over there, they're just, they're just real. They just stay angry all the time. They're just full of anger. I know I'm talking to a man or a woman who's full of anger. You only judge what you know. You only judge what you know. You can't judge anything else. So if you feel that, and you might rightly judge. I'm not saying, for the most part, what I just said is true, but there are times when, when it actually is true. My husband's a drunk, and it, it just happens to be that that's the case. But most of the time, my husband is a very angry man. I'm, I'm dealing with a very angry woman. Or my wife is a, a very prideful person. I'm dealing with a man with a lot of pride. That's how it works. You can only judge what you know. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, it doesn't say, should not practice the same thing, does it? It says, for you who judge, practice the same thing. Was Adolf Hitler wrong? I'm not saying that judging someone else is not wrong, is, is not right. Of course we must make that judgment. Yes, Adolf Hitler was wrong. If we don't recognize that and hold to it and defend it and fight for it, America can end up in the very same situation. So we look at history and we judge history. And we say, Adolf Hitler was wrong. Well, have you ever put anyone down for any reason? Then you stand before God condemned. Just one analogy. We, we're all prejudiced and I recognize that. I'm as prejudiced as anyone else. But, but let's just say that there are those like the Ku Klux Klan that are really prejudiced. And I'm not excusing us. We're all prejudiced, and I know that. Anyone that tells me he's not prejudiced, he's just lying to me. I know that. Because we're afraid of that, uh, of that which we do not know about. You're condemned. That's how God works. That's how God works. You want to talk about wealth? You want to talk about education? You want to talk about morality? God will get you every time going to stand before God without excuse. There is no escape. There is no escape. There is no escape. Paul has presented exhibit number A. There is no escape. Paul has presented exhibit number B. There is no escape. If you ever enter into the courtroom of God as God is your judge, I promise you there will be no escape. You had best settle this matter out of court. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. God's going to judge according to truth. Rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There is no escape. There is no escape. Or do you think lightly, and I'll finish, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. There is the saving grace of God. There is the, the, the glory of the grace of God. And we're familiar with that, but there's another grace of God. And the theologians call it common grace. You've got your just and righteous man over here in a field who's accepted the, the atoning work of Christ, Son of God, for his uh, righteousness. And you've got the sinner right next to him. God pours rain on the just man and God pours rain on the unjust man alike. That's common grace. 
We in America are just full. God has just blessed us overwhelmingly with common grace. I can go into my pocket and bring out a dollar for my child for an allowance. Every one of us here is living in a warm room, a warm house. We either have a house or an apartment. It's heated. We, we're not hungry at this moment. We, we are filled up. We go home to our, our, our warm beds and our loving families and we drive nice cars or we drive a car period rather than walking. All these things God has richly brought upon the, uh, America and brought upon us here and more and we ignore that. We do not acknowledge that, not realizing that it's the kindness of God, the patience of God, the forbearance of God that leads us to repentance. God is good. God is good. Oh, that we might learn that, that God is good. Even if he doesn't save, he's good. You got it better than you ever, ever deserve. Every one of us here has got it a lot better than we deserve. And yet, for the most of us, I believe, he's even saved us. But it's the kindness of God, the goodness of God, that led us to repentance. Verse 6, now, verse 5, and I'll quit. But because of your stubbornness, God is kind, God is good. God has blessed us with all kinds of, of, of good things. We do not acknowledge God in his creation. We do not acknowledge God in our conscience. Our own conscience will not lead us to uh, submissive, to a bow, bowing down and a worshiping of God Almighty, God the Creator. And yet even then he doesn't send us to hell. Even then he, he, he's patient with us and he gives us good things because it's nature to be good. And he gives us families. He gives us money. And he blesses us. And we ignore that. We put that down. He's created all kinds of wonderful things in the universe for us to, to enjoy. And we put that down. We're just an evil, ungodly people. But because of the stubbornness, your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This storing up, it's a really neat word. It has to do with being a miser. You're hoarding up wrath. You're a miser. Uh, think of one who just tries to collect all the money and takes it home with them and won't spend it. The real miser. You're misering up wrath. You're collecting wrath. You're storing up wrath. A man has a, a longing for rattlesnake eggs. Do, do rattlesnakes have eggs? Or do they have little rattlesnakes? Eggs? Eggs? So a man has this fetish, if you will, for rattlesnake eggs. And he buys a, an expensive incubator. And he goes out and he collects. He spends his life collecting rattlesnake eggs. Just hoarding them up, storing them up. Just building it. Got a room full of rattlesnake eggs. One night while he's sleeping, they hatch. And they come over and they bite him and he dies. It's his own fault. He was storing up rattlesnake eggs. And we store up the wrath of God. We hoard it. We're proud of it. We hang on to it. What a people we are. What a people we are. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's the end. But as we go through these lessons, I think whenever we come to 3 verse 20, it's really going to be good news indeed. Any questions or comments before we close? 
Philip? When you said that people would go that partiality? Yes. What about the teaser? You understand that All right, that's a real good question. Uh, for those on tape who didn't hear that, when I, when the Bible says that God judges without partiality, what about the little kids? What about the babies? What does God do with babies? Does he send them to hell or does he take them to heaven? That is a, has enormous theological, uh, brings up enormous theological uh, problems that, that most folks couldn't answer, but we who are, as we nicknamed, are nicknamed Calvinists, we have an answer for that. Quite the contrary, as a matter of fact, most Calvinists are accused of, of sending babies to hell, but it's the Armenian who sends babies to hell. The Armenian has no way. The Armenian comes up with the age of accountability. Every baby is born into this world and he goes to heaven if he dies until he reaches the age of accountability. Then he must choose, right, choose Christ or reject him. At that point, God will send him to hell if he doesn't accept Christ. There's not one word, not one word in the scriptures about that. Not one. Aunt Maud thought that up. She just couldn't deal with, with the babies and her own theology. So there is no accountability. So if a, if a person, if a baby, if salvation, and I'm, I'm getting to your point, Phil, if a, if a person has to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, then to be saved, the Armenian has got to put the babies in hell because they did not accept. They did not accept, did they? And if there's not an age of accountability in the scriptures, then babies must be in hell. But we, the Calvinists, come along and we say, man's not saved by his decision. Man is saved by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. That's salvation. There's where the, their salvation is in the blood of the cross. Now we have no problem. But God Almighty can apply that blood to anyone he pleases. And he applies it to every baby, Phil. So he's still, he is still not judging with partiality. Those babies are sinners. Those babies are sinners. A little rattlesnake is just as, just as poisonous as a big rattlesnake. A baby is just as sinful as an adult. Don't believe me? Ask Bill Cosby. So babies are sinners. And they're in need of salvation. And they can't save themselves. Therefore, God applies it, the blood. God saves babies in exactly the same way he saves adults. Exactly. He applies the blood of Jesus Christ to whom he will. So whenever it says that, uh, that uh, Christ has a people out of every tribe, tongue, kindred, nation, he's talking about the babies. The Indian babies in America before America was ever discovered. When David says, my son can't come here, talking about his baby, my son can't come here, but I'll go and be with him. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he was going to go to heaven to be with his son, the baby that died. So there, there is your answer. God does, not, God does not bring babies into heaven because of partiality. He brings babies into heaven because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. In the very same way that he, that he brings anyone else. Any other good question? Anything else? Excellent question. Anything else? Father, again, we thank you for this time. We just pray that 
that as we go through this book, you will teach many, that you'll teach many, many uh, the beauty of your salvation, that we might escape your judgment. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was Romans 2, the first part of it. And I did want to just address something really quick. Sometimes those sermons will start like mid, mid-sentence, and so we don't have any control over that. It's just whenever Larry decided to push record, he had a little tape recorder up by the pulpit. And so whenever he would push record on that tape player, that's when the sermon started. So this one started in the middle of a sentence. Uh, but you got the gist of what he was talking about. I wanted to talk about the concept of only judging what you know. This is so uh, true for us, true for me in my life. And it's so much fun to get to listen to these tapes again this many years later, and then I can be reminded of truths of Romans. I can be reminded of the truth in Romans all over again. When Larry said he can only judge what he knows, so people who talk a lot bother him, but people who are quiet don't bother him at all because he talked a lot. It reminds me of how that happens with me. So people that are close to me, if there's something that really, really bothers me about them, I have to look inside myself and say, well, is the reason why that thing they're doing is bothersome to me is because I do it, and I do it really bad. This happened just the other night. My husband and I were in bed, and he hurt my feelings a little bit. And then he was talking. He didn't mean to, but he was talking, and it had to do with interrupting. And so he had accused me of interrupting, and I didn't, so I just decided to go quiet. And he talked for a while, and I wasn't giving the usual uh, response back or, or making him feel like he that I cared that he was talking to me. And then at the very end, he said, well, what are, are you, what's wrong? And of course, I say, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, which is very passive-aggressive. It's a very passive-aggressive thing to do, a way to act. And that's what bothers me about my husband the most. Well, not the most, but it's just one thing that bothers me in general is passive-aggressiveness. But the reason why it bothers me so much is because that's in me. And I just don't realize how strong it is in me. And uh, for us, when we, for Christians living our lives here on earth and we're, we're married to sinners. We have children. Our children are sinners. Our parents are sinners. Our siblings are sinners. We're all sinners. And so it's, it's such a relief to understand biblical truths about sin, to understand about people, because then it, it keeps us from having too high expectations of people, even Christians. We have standards, of course, but the, the relationships in which you have the, that are the closest, those people that are closest to you are still struggling with sin just like you are, just like I am. And so this is just a very practical understanding that can help me in my marriage, a practical understanding that can help you in your marriage or in your close relationships. The Bible is so wise, the Lord is so wise that we should really lean into it. We should lean into the Bible and see what it has to say about sin. It's the most accurate book 
there is out there for sin, and we only benefit from looking to see what Christ says about sin, about our nature, uh, so that we can better understand ourselves and better understand the people that we love, better understand the people that we go to church with and our community and so on. That was uh, a good a good sermon for me to hear and to be reminded about how sin actually works in people, how sin works in me and how sin works in the people that are close to me. These sermons are just wonderful to listen to. When, so my husband and I have to listen to the sermons first before they can go onto the podcast because we have to clean them up and make the best we can. And I look forward to that every time that I know it's time to listen to a sermon to get it ready to produce. I, I just look forward to that so much because I know there's things that Larry's going to say that no one else says, or at least that I haven't heard anybody else say. And it, it's, it's great. And then two other things that I wanted to talk about. At the very end of the lesson, Larry says, any questions before we close? And there was a kid who asked a question about babies going, babies dying. And it was f so much fun to hear that question. And we turned up the volume really loud so that we could hear what he was saying. And hopefully we engineered it in a way on the, on the podcast that you can hear the question. And he asked about if there's no partiality with God. Oh, and, and dad, uh, he repeated the, question so you all would would be able to hear what it what it says but what he asked but this kid named philip he um asked if there's no partiality with god then what about babies and then larry gave the answer and one thing about our church no matter what church dad was teaching in is ki the kids were with the parents the kids sat under his larry's teaching my earliest memory of my mom is sitting in church, in a church that my dad was a pastor, one of the pastors, and her holding her hand cupped underneath my chin and saying, let me have your gum, because church was about to start, and she wouldn't let us chew gum during church. I was really young, probably four or five, but that church, being near my parents in church my entire life was a tremendous blessing. Our kids, my husband and I, um, our kids were always with us. They are with us, and they were always with us. And it really sent the message that the the word of the Lord is for families. And we don't segment and compartmentalize based on age and ability to understand the gospel. And if that, if Philip at that time had been in a quote-unquote Sunday school class or a youth group, some other ministry, then he would not have been able to ask that question. It was a very thoughtful, insightful question. And I think about the, the goal of a school, isn't that the goal of a school is to get these kids, whoever, the students to think critically and to think, to think deeply. And, and what a question that was for Philip to think about and just all of a sudden at the end of the at the end of the sermon here he is he's asking this deep theological question and what was so uh, interesting and and astounding is that Philip 
probably didn't even realize the depth of, I mean, not the depth, but the theological implications of the question he was asking, because he wasn't he, he wasn't afraid to ask that question. And the reason he wasn't afraid to ask that question is because Larry and all other pastors that would teach with Larry, if, if there were more than one pastor in the church that he was teaching, he never put a barrier between him and his congregation. And there was never any pecking order or any, any way in which we had levels of people, of levels of importance and approachability. So Philip could just ask that question as if he's asking his own dad, what's for dinner tomorrow night? Or can you help me with my homework? It was that approachability that allowed Philip to ask the question. And you could hear it in Larry's voice. You could hear how, how thrilled he was to, that he got, he, got to ask, he got to answer that question, especially from a kid. Philip was not probably not more than 16 at the time. I think he was younger, but I'm not sure. It, it, was, it was thrilling for Larry to be able to answer his question about babies and where they go when they die. Theo, theologians debate these things, and here Larry is answering it from a, a teenager who was made to feel part of the congregation, so much so that he just popped his hand up and he just asked this question. In gathering all of the testimonials for this podcast that we rotate at the be- very beginning of the podcast, I I was touched by so many of the people saying that Larry made them feel like they could come to him, like he, like he was bringing, like they were bringing him a gift, because he just loved to talk about the Bible, and he loved to talk about the Bible with anybody that wanted to talk about the Bible with him. That is kind of sums up my um, thoughts about this sermon. And he did, Larry did say, we're in the stockyards and we'll, we'll try and get out of here pretty soon um, because the issue of sin. Uh, but it, it's, it's wonderful because we know what's on the other side. We know what's on the other side of our depravity. We know what's on the other side of our sinfulness. We have the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast, you can email me at thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Timeless Gospel Podcast. 